Hello and welcome to Setting the Skein. I'm Ben. I'm Tristan. And I'm Michael. Welcome. Welcome. Michael, wow. you're back. I'm back. He's back. Two weeks in a row. I'm, oh my gosh. Popped in. Yeah. What back are you back doing? Episodes. Yeah. Why are I'm, you here? I'm here. We'll I, talk about another I one of your favorite films. Yeah. Yeah. What, well, what did we watch? We, we watched the, the social network <gasps> and it was awesome. Great. That's a spoiler alert to my opinion on this movie. <laughs> Mike, how's your cat doing? My cat's doing okay. She yeah. she's being she's having a little bit. I have a cat, everyone. And uh <laughs> if you hear noises, I'm sorry. That's that's the cat. But ah wonderful. She's that's having fun. she's having a good time, and I'm having a good time because I'm here to talk about my second favorite movie of all time. I oh, believe second favorite. Yes. Uh, well, yes, that is uh 2010s i believe the social network directed by david fincher uh starring jesse eisenberg andrew garfield justin timberlake rooney mara uh dustin fitzsimmons a whole bunch of other folks um probably some other important people that i missed um and let's see how to do in terms of budget i'm guessing it probably brought in a decent bit of money I uh yes uh it's it, pretty good money yeah it, it did uh so i had a 40 million dollar budget uh and brought in 224 million dollars so yeah it was i would say moderately successful mm. uh also critically acclaimed um as a 7.7 out of 10 on imdb 95 percent on metacritic uh rotten tomatoes as a 96 percent uh, on the tomato meter only 86 percent on the audience score though which is interesting mm. Not surprising that um, critics like this more than the general audience, but yeah. So uh, I personally have not seen this film. Uh, Mike, Chris, and I know both of you have, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me yeah. about your experience with it. How'd well, you find this movie? How'd you fall in love with it? Well, Mike, I, at least, Chris, I don't know how you feel about this movie. I'll, <laughs> well, I'll start because I think Mike probably has more to say, but <laughs> I, I watched this movie because Mike said i should watch it and i think we watched it together pretty yeah. sure i don't remember when uh i thought this movie came out in 2013 but it was 2010 mm-hmm. don't know why i thought that uh so yeah i saw the movie and uh this was my second time watching it i don't watch many movies more than once if i like it um if i like it a whole lot i'll watch it more than once but if i just like it you know just give the old one watched and done <laughs> you know how are you feeling after the second view and you like it a little more a little less um about the same i guess about the same i've forgotten a lot because it's uh-huh. been quite a few years since i've seen it um like uh-huh. yeah i guess i guess i for yeah i just forgot a lot of the movie so it was kind of like experiencing a lot of it for a, a new a new time so uh-huh. it's good all right. Well, Mike, tell us tell us your story. My story. Wow. Uh, it it starts in Wisconsin <laughs> in the mid '90s, but we'll skip ahead to 2010. Where um, <laughs> were you at in 2003, Mike? Hmm. Uh, Wisconsin in the mid '90s. Yeah, that's that's where the story starts. 2003. To answer your question, I was in Stockbridge, Georgia. I believe. Ah. But ah, uh, um, yes, the uh, booming metropolis. Yeah, the booming metropolis Stockbridge. of Stockbridge, Georgia. <laughs> Northern Henry County. Good times. Anyway, uh, I don't think I had a Facebook, but <laughs> no. uh, I also wasn't in Massachusetts creating Facebook. That was that was Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. And then oh. several years later, 
this movie is coming out. So I've, I think I've talked on the, t- on the podcast before about Inception. So 2010 was a really formative year for me. I was a teenager and I was starting to get into movies beyond what I had been shown. And 2010 is kind of peak year for me because Inception came out by Christopher Nolan, who directed that movie, which blew my mind, um, really kind of showed me that blockbusters could be about like something really, really interesting. And then I, I think it was either before that movie or I was watching another movie, but the trailer came on for the social network and the social network has one of the most famous trailers of all time, I would argue. It has been incredibly heavily played and and mocked and parodied and such because the trailer is wrapped around this cover of Radiohead's Creep. And I had to look up the name of the the artist. It's it's a choir uh, named the Scala and Colonsi Brothers. My apologies, but uh, it's this is haunting music and it's like a Facebook movie and everyone's kind of expecting one thing. And then you get this trailer that's about like betrayal and like friendship and like it's not like growing an empire it's it's mm-hmm. more of uh, the story of like two guys and uh, i also I felt, feel like this came out before uh several of the more recent controversies surrounding facebook and mark zuckerberg oh definitely this this is before all the pir- the the privacy issues mm-hmm. the political issues this is before all that oh yeah this is just way before it yeah Th- this, so, like, this i feel like yeah. Uh, we can get into this later, but I felt like that almost kind of gives a new light to this film. It really does. And um, Facebook's power and influence has only grown since this movie, but this movie anyway, came out... Back to what you are saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- this movie came out kind of on the tail end of the big lawsuits that kind of defined Facebook in the, in the mid-2000s, which people had heard about, I had heard about. And um, when I saw the movie, like it was such a uniquely personal story it was an incredible script and I, I fell in love with it immediately. It was like my favorite movie of all time and it got bumped down one slot, but it's still up there. I, I have seen this movie countless times, probably more so than Gone Girl, which is like my third favorite movie. <laughs> so have you seen it more than your favorite movie? Yes, actually, I have. Okay. Uh, but that's only because my favorite movie is a movie called It's Such a Beautiful Day by Don Hertzfeld. <laughs> and watching it is, is the equivalent of staring into the abyss. So it's not something you like to do too often. That's but fair. That's the fair. Social Network is a, is a thrilling two hours. It moves so fast mm. for me. Um, it, it's a great watch and rewatch. All right, cool. Uh, well, do one of y'all want to uh, tell us kind of what happens in this movie? Okay. <laughs> um, so the, the movie is basically a frame narrative around two depositions um, that Mark Zuckerberg is taking place in. Uh, apologies to the cat. Um, one of you these. Never need dep- to apologize for your cat, Mike. Oh, that's true. I love that cat. Um, so one of these depositions is taking place because um, of the lawsuit from the Winklevoss twins, uh, Cameron and Dustin. Michael Voss, I believe. Tyler. Tyler. Okay. And then the other is by a guy named Eduardo Saverin. And uh, these two depositions frame the movie, which is kind of a look back in time at the founding of Facebook just one or two years before these lawsuits. And it kind of tells the story of how Mark in his dorm room came up with Facebook with some other guys and like quickly amassed this growing empire. And it's kind of these guys quickly going through the startup phase and then having like a, a, a billion dollar company. 
um, kind of right off the bat. And it's kind of how they handle this. But the whole movie is kind of focused on Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Saverin and their friendship and how their friendship develops throughout the course of uh, this crazy thing they developed. And that's, yeah, it's, that's the movie. <laughs> All right, cool. And everyone talks fast. Very fast, uh, especially uh, Mark Zuckerberg played by uh, Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, well, it, it, it is fast, but it's also engaging. I mean, I, I like all kinds of movies and generally the, the movies that I like um, have a lot of talking in them. So, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's pretty expertly written. We'll get to that. But also, uh, it, it's it's just it, there's a it's dense. There's a lot to go through, and there's a lot to really explore about these characters. So it well. says a lot, and it says it all really quickly, which yeah. is interesting. Um, I think because like it's a movie about Facebook, but the movie's not really about Facebook. <laughs> not at all. Like and, yeah, it's kind of like the background, or, or like even almost like the setting for all of this. Um, it reminds me like uh, several weeks ago, we watched The Professor and the Madman, uh, which was about the creation of the Oxford Dictionary. Um, and like, yeah, that was kind of happening in the background, but that wasn't like the major plot focus. Um, it was the but, car that the plot was traveling inside of. Right, yeah. right. And the plot with this is uh, kind of like you were talking about earlier, Mark and Edwardo's friendship and kind of how, honestly, I would say it kind of devolves over the course of this film. I would I would say it it, it does. I, th- I think it evolves, but it evolves into an inevitable end, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah, especially after um, Justin Timberlake's character gets introduced. Oh yeah, he yeah. founded uh, Napster, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep, Sean Parker. Yeah, is the character that Justin what Timberlake is playing. Yeah. What a guy! What a guy! Yeah, <laughs> he's a journey. Uh, fun, interesting fact about the pacing of this movie. This movie, um, Screenplay 101, one page of a screenplay is formatted to be roughly one minute of a film. And this screenplay is either 168 or 172 pages long. So if it was filmed and paced normally, this movie would be almost three hours. And one of the mandates from the studio was that no matter what, they have to make the movie under two hours. So if you look at a timer, the movie ends and credits end, I think at like 159.55, like it, they cut it razor thin and they debated cutting some scenes of the movie, but the, uh, the writer of the movie, Aaron Sorkin recorded himself delivering the entire movie line by line and proved that it can be done. So they ran with his script. Interesting. So uh, I uh, just pulled up the Wikipedia page and this is completely unrelated to everything we were talking about, but I found it interesting that Army Hammer Plays both Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. I did not realize that when watching the film. Yeah, Um, it's incredibly well done facial mm -hmm. replacement. It's very hard to catch. I did not realize that. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So, Mike, tell me about uh, Mark and Eduardo. Oh, man. Um, Well, Mark Zuckerberg is, if you've ever seen a movie with Jesse Eisenberg, he kind of plays himself a little bit. or like his his character like he plays the, a similar character a similar character a lot of films that he does yeah uh mark zuckerberg is is very neurotic he is not very good socially he is very hyper obsessed with validation but he's very defensive about it um he's very focused on like the finals clubs which are these uh like exclusive clubs that are um to be found in harvard and 
and that and throughout the story he's kind of developing this thing and he's um kind of becomes more and more gray and nebulous in terms of what he's uh chasing after and like the things he's doing legally and otherwise in order to get it done versus eduardo Saverin is a character who has come from money he's come from means he's not too worried about that and he is more focused on being more of a friend he's not as in love with the idea of facebook and i think that tension is kind of where the the movie starts to kind of get its emotional weight to it because the two characters are kind of trying to find a way of growing this when one of the two characters isn't that invested for whatever reason and has the validation from the finals clubs and from others that Mark Zuckerberg is kind of seeking. So there's this, uh, there's this tension that's going on there. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of, I would say, kind of defines the two characters in the movie. Yeah, and like, I think this movie does a good job like I think uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Andrew Garfield just have really incredible on-screen chemistry. So, like they have a, a very believable friendship throughout this, and like it really helps uh, the viewers empathize with uh, Andrew Garfield's character at the end when he's essentially removed from um, the spot that he was in. Yeah, he gets booted out of the company and this friendship ends up becoming and and you know because of the frame narrative of the movie that the friendship ends right but because of that you get to watch that slowly unfold and Mm -hmm. see how they got there well almost immediately yeah i mean almost immediately at least in the movie you start seeing bark and eduardo clash on a lot of different things um and usually it ends with eduardo just accepting whatever's happening and saying okay it's fine let's move on or agreeing with mark or just generally pushing his own view or his own thought about it to the side just like going with mark so it's it's yeah it 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 is a slow burn i guess um in a way but i mean it's it starts burning at the beginning so yeah and i would also say the movie is kind of a collection of highlights because of the narrative device you are only seeing what the Winklevoss twins, Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Saverin are deeming important to the story of Facebook. So you're kind of hopping back and forth between these different scenes, um, basically watching a highlight reel of a year and a half in these characters' lives. Yeah, Uh, which is interesting. Um, I've got the Wikipedia page. I guess I'm filling in for Elijah uh, today. I've got the (laughs) Wikipedia page pulled up and um, it's interesting what they focused on in this movie. Um, Duskin Moskovitz did an interview, um, I guess, several years ago, <clears throat> where he uh, called the film a dramatization of history and said that it was interesting to see the past rewritten in a way that emphasizes things that didn't matter. Uh, like he said, he never met the Winklevosses, um, uh, left things out, uh, like the many other people in the lives at the time. Uh, like one person who makes a brief appearance, but was there for a much larger portion of time, Mark Zuckerberg's wife. Like she is briefly introduced in the film uh, with Brenda Song's character's friend. Um, oh, I didn't even know that was that character. I, I oh. think that was supposed to be her. Um, <laughs> but like they met at Harvard <laughs> and I at least 
and I presume in some way stayed together or stayed connected through that. Um, but she's barely in the film, if even at all. So I, I'd say uh, Eduardo Severin also said that the movie was clearly intended to be entertainment and not a fact-based documentary. So yeah. how, do, how do y'all feel about that? Like taking this um, idea, like I, I guess we kind of saw it with uh, The Professor and the Madman too, like taking this historical thing that happened and kind of changing it to focus on more dramatized things. Right. I think that's what's interesting about this movie is this movie is pretty far from the truth in certain places Mm -hmm. than scarily accurate in others. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, the real Mark Zuckerberg, gave an interview and he uh, he saw the movie and he said, my only note, other than I, I don't think any of this is accurate, is they have every single piece of clothing completely accurate. Yeah, I wore yeah. every single thing that Jesse Eisenberg's character wore. Yeah. And um, so I think he also made some comment about how he kind of wishes they hadn't made a movie about him while he was alive. No, oh, yeah. Yeah. Which, can't say I blame him there. Uh, you know, that that brings up an interesting question or that, that I was thinking. <clears throat> you know, you, you, you take something like in a, just any event that happens and you make a, a piece of media about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it depends on what it is, but is it, you know, is it worth making a, a is it right, I guess? I don't know who, how to answer that question, but the, the thing that happened happened fairly recently when this movie came out mm-hmm. and was still happening. Um in some ways and Facebook itself was still growing and it has even entered into more um, shady areas, I guess. And, mm-hmm. you know, st- the stuff of privacy that we've heard about as of starting a few years ago. So the, uh, political turmoil that they've been in the last yeah. uh, several years. Yeah. And it, I don't want not, I'm not discrediting this movie by saying this. I, I just, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious, like looking at other films, like take the those two Steve Jobs movies that came out after Steve Jobs died. It was like 2014 or around there or something. I think they came out. Right. It's like, you know that that those led up or those were about a guy who you know was around recently and he the the movies took place like 10 years prior or 15 years prior or something. You know, um, I know they led up to to that point, but. Uh, anyway, it just gets me thinking about should we wait to make, should we wait for the retrospective to kick in on a lot of these events? You know, like what, as a collective, I guess I'm asking, like, is it bad that we're making a movie about something that we don't have that that retrospective yet because it, ha- because it just happened? We're, we're looking at it in, in, in a series of facts that are still fresh. It just happened, you know? So... The, the media that comes out is based off of that, but it's not based off of, you know, like a movie about uh, the civil war or something, you know, where it happened so long ago, we've studied the heck out of it. We know everything about it. You know, I'd say it's not like when we watch Harriet where we've got like so many things that can be drawn on to write that, write a film like that. But, but here's the thing Harriet, you know, the, the characters in Harriet, are are not alive anymore and they, they we don't have very many primary sources to, to take not not as many as we would have from a movie like the social network mm-hmm. um or something like jobs you know it, it, it's like 
we have those sources to, to build off of to make a movie that represents this time and these people. But we also don't have that uh, sort of retrospective of that time gives people to think about things and research things even more. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at a movie that, is, that takes place like, like the movie Glory with uh, Matthew Broderick, you know, it's probably, it's pr- that's probably not ex- extremely accurate. <laughs> I think yeah. it's fair to say. Uh, it's a great movie, but it, it's not as accurate as something that just happened. You know, we just made a movie about something that just happened could be as accurate. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And what's they, the, what's the they, narrative? Uh, draw that? from another movie that we've also watched on the podcast. But, uh, you've got uh, Black Klansman, which was directed by Spike Lee. And there are some parts that are definitely embellished, some parts that are, it's almost kind of like hitting you in the back of the head, like trying to make a point. Like the, the scene that specifically sticks out in my mind is a scene at the very end. Uh, you've got John David Washington's character uh, talking with uh, the uh, Graham Poobah of the clan or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like just tearing into him about how this whole time he's been talking uh, to a black man. That never actually happened. Um, but it's this scene that's added almost for like emphasis to make a point and to like be entertaining. Um it really like kind of hits me with the quote that I gave earlier about like focusing on the things that didn't really matter, but help you to, tr- I guess, try and tell a better story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I don't, I don't know. Is that at what point are you like trying to make a historically based film versus trying to tell a good story? Like what's the balance there? Uh, yeah. I think, I think you're touching on it a little bit and, and I'll say this. I think, there is this inherent contemporary bias when it comes to the fidelity of the truth, right? So you have you have the fact that we can ask these people that Mark Zuckerberg isn't even forty, I don't think, or he might have just he's turned forty. Um, so I want to say he's you, like thirty-seven. Yeah, you you have people alive now that are an authoritative source on the events of what the movie is talking about and who can tell you what's right or wrong. Also, given what we know about the history, they, their stories don't line up. If you ask Edward Saverin now what happened, and you ask Mark Zuckerberg now what happened, they're not going to line up. The, the movie touches on that briefly. But I, I would argue that when you have a film that's old, you have this inherent bias into thinking it's more accurate because that, pic, that depiction of that character, that real-life counterpart, is dead. Or, like, and otherwise, you're making a posthumous movie. So I, I would heavily wager if you showed Harriet, the movie Harriet, she would have just as much of an issue with it as Mark Zuckerberg has with the social network. Mm-hmm. And there's this bias, I think, in, in our, our, our play there. So the thing is, revisionist history is part and parcel of a biopic. Yeah. You, you can't get away from it. You can get as close as you can. But I don't think the ultimate goal of these films either is or should be fidelity to the truth. I think there is... Um, there is somewhat of an onus on the, the part of the creator to make a story that encapsulates the essence of the real life story. Because I think the whole point of telling real life stories is to highlight a parable or to highlight a zeitgeist. So when you have the social network, um, I think it was a perfect time to make the movie because Facebook had just solidified itself as the most powerful social media brand and the most influential social media brand in the world. And at that point, the question became, how did we get here? 
yes, yeah, so like yes, that Facebook became so much more after that point, but that was right when that was happening. I think it was a perfect time to go. How do we get here? What's the story behind this? And the story behind this is about interconnectivity and about friendships and about social interactions. Like that's why the movie is a social network and not the Facebook movie or like mm-hmm. Big Mark or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I I think this movie tells a really, really good story. And I would argue based on the structure of the movie, I think they strongly imply that their own movie is not being extremely accurate. And I think at certain times you will see a scene and characters, it'll cut to a uh, disposition, uh, disposition, and a character will have an issue with what we just saw. Mm -hmm. So I, I think maybe the movie could have at times been a little more clear about that. But I think it's more focused on the story and the narrative and it's focused and encapsulates a part of its own movie and its own structure that what you're seeing might not necessarily be the truth. But what we know about the past and what we know about the founding of Facebook is this growth that 19, 20 year olds had and having to quickly go from college students who have no HR department to making these national multi-billion dollar corporations overnight. Mm -hmm. And the relationships that are strained and ultimately lost in that mad climb to becoming the most influential company possibly in the world. So to me, I think it's okay to have a little bit of play there when it comes to historical accuracy in order to get to the meat of the story. And I also think that a lot of older films have that bias that we can't go ask those characters because it's a posthumous movie about, or those people that the characters are portraying about um, because it's a posthumous thing that we can't ask them because I'm sure they would have just as much of an issue because people have their own biases and people have their own um, perceptions of what is truth. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a good point. And I mean, I feel like we fall, we can fall into those biases a lot with anyone who's now dead. (laughs) Like (laughs) you start thinking of like, uh, not to get too political, but presidents from like several decades or a century ago and you don't know much about them unless you're unless that's something that you actively studied uh, someone right. comes up to you and says so what do you think of president james k polk you're like <laughs> i don't know he's probably fine yeah and, and i think hamilton's a really good example of what i'm mm-hmm. talking about hamilton kind of does something similar to where i think they make it pretty abundantly clear that they're not trying to tell a completely accurate story yeah. that they're trying to do a retelling of legacy and the birth of a nation from a new and more modern perspective and a more understanding and egalitarian world that we live in now. And it's funny that you wouldn't normally see that story told from, right. From the point of view of Alexander Hamilton, as opposed to George Washington, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. Right. And and there's a lot of play there with, with the truth. In fact, if you watch, interviews Lin-Manuel Miranda the the man who made that uh wrote the book and like produced um Hamilton he doesn't refer to the characters as George Washington Hamilton he says the Washington character the Hamilton character and he he even like draws that line because of how different the characters are from the little we know and I'm sure they're even more different than we could possibly know because wait are, are you trying to tell me that Alexander Hamilton did not wrap everything that he said yes Yes, I am. I'm so sorry. Mind blown. Mind blown. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Hamilton and the social network kind of have that in common in yeah. terms of, of making some artistic changes in regards to a real life story mm-hmm. in order to get a point across. 
So I do kind of want to go back to what you said for a second about the uh, kind of deposition working as the frame narrative for this, because uh, I thought you brought up a really interesting point with uh, these bits of like the story being told from the point of view of this deposition. We as the film, or like as the film watcher, the audience, um, there's not really a super reliable narrator for us, which reminds me of like every David Fincher film I've ever seen. Yeah, <laughs> good thing he made this one too. Yeah, because I mean, you've got yeah. Gone Girl, which doesn't have a reliable narrator. Fight Club, um, Zodiac doesn't really have a re- reliable narrator. I don't feel like not really. <laughs> it, it's uh, I, that one probably more so than the others, but at the same time, that's just kind of Fincher's thing: is right. this question of what is truth and this question of what is right and wrong. I think mm-hmm. you see that a lot when it comes to David Fincher's work. And um, with Sorkin, who's just a masterful screenwriter, this is probably my favorite script ever written. Um, I think they made such an intense film where you have the way Fincher shoots things and the way Fincher highlights certain aspects of the script and the script just telling this intricately laced story that's cutting back and forth constantly. Um, it, It gets very intense. And yeah, with these depositions, like you're just being fed these different lines by these different characters. And you'll, you'll kind of feel, you'll watch a scene with that Eduardo kind of led into, and then he's the hero of that bit. And then the, the Winklevoss twins will kind of explain something. And then they look like they're having it, like they're the ones that are getting slighted. So it, it, it's kind of a courtroom drama at times. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. And I think it was just like a very interesting vehicle to give us that unreliable narrator. Because that's not normally how, like, I feel like you get things like that in a movie. Yeah. It's a very, um, it's just a lot of bouncing back and forth. And then, of course, anyone who knows Sorkin, Sorkin is kind of famous for writing The West Wing, which was uh, an older political show, I think early 2000s. And he actually wrote uh, Steve Jobs, not Jobs, but Steve Jobs, that movie. He wrote that one as well. Um, He's got a lot of different Sorkinisms. Uh, as as people call it when they when they're really into screenwriting and it some of the lines and the comebacks are so glorious you would never hear them in real life but they just sound beautiful they are so great <laughs> also for those wondering steve jobs was the one with michael fassbender not uh, mm-hmm. ashton kutcher that's yeah that, that's good to clarify and i think when you watch those movies if you um kind of see the the social network and steve jobs back to back they feel very similar at times did you like that one mike i never saw steve jobs i i enjoyed steve jobs i think the director they chose i I didn't like jobs jobs is not that great um when it comes to steve jobs movie steve jobs the the script is great i have no issues with the script the direction i can't remember the director's name i'll look it up he made uh life of pi and slim dog millionaire i believe in 127 hours um I, I don't know if he was a right pick for the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes there's this disc. Uh, it was uh, Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle. There's this incongruity going on between the script and the director. And that's why I think uh, Fincher pulls it off so well. He just, the way he does it lines up really well with what Sorkin is writing. Hmm. Interesting. All right, Mike, I know you've been wanting to talk about this. Tell me about the score. The score is amazing. I believe it's Academy Award nominated score. Um, This was done by Trent Reznor. I talked about this last week a little bit. If you listen to the Gone Girl episode, you can hear me talk about it a little more. Um, 
sounds like my cat has something to say about it. But uh, <laughs> the thing about the score is it is the perfect score for this film that is about something so new about nascent stages of, of an incredibly uh, powerful organization that they got Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails to make this incredibly dissonant, uncomfortable electronic score at a time when that was not very popular. Um, you hear that a little more these days, but still nothing quite like you hear from, from these two. It's just so intense. The, the main theme of the movie is like four or five notes on a piano. Mm. And the way they do it is just haunting when it comes on. Yes. Uh, and as a quick addendum, it actually won the Oscar for uh, best oh, score. Oh, good. Good. Mm-hmm. Best it, original it score. Very much deserved it. It's kind of funny because people who are into scores loathe these two. Mm-hmm. But uh, I also think won Oscars for uh, best writing for adapted screenplay and best achievement in film editing. You said Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did this score, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they've really been doing a lot in the past 10 years. This was their first one, too. I believe this is the first film they ever scored. Really? Well, uh, what a way to uh, kind of break out in the field. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huge entrance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not super familiar with their entire body of work, but it seems like they've done a, a mostly pretty consistent job of continually putting good stuff out there, even if some of it is a little bit more controversial. It's yeah, and the thing is, listen to the main track from the social network is Hand Covers Bruce. Listen to it with headphones on, it'll hurt. And it's designed to hurt. It is hard panning between the left and right channels with this uncomfortable, it sounds like a cello that somebody needs to put out of its misery. Mm. But at the same time, you have the haunting few piano notes kind of soaring on top of that. And it, it just sets the stage so beautifully for the story. Trent Reznor is Nine Inch Nails, right? So Trent Reznor, uh, side note on on Trent Reznor, he was exclusively the only member of Nine Inch Nails up until I think a year ago. Oh, And I think Atticus Ross became an official member at that point, but Atticus had been working with Nine Inch Nails for the better part of a decade, if not two decades. Interesting. Yeah. So currently in 2021, they are both Nine Inch Nails, but of course at the time it was just Trent. I do not have nine inch nails. I might have nine one inch nails. <laughs> I might have ten. I don't know, depending hey. on how long my nail is from the bed. Anyway, um, I think it's time we score this sucker. All right, so who wants to go first? I'll do it. Go for it, Tristan. 85. 85. Why? Uh, oh. Oh, I have to tell you? Yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, gee, gee whiz. Oh boy. Uh, well, you think you can just throw an arbitrary number on this podcast? Oh, ah, dang. We will not let you do such a thing. Man, we've never done that before. Um, <laughs> can, can I? All right. Well, I... <laughs> it's an 85 because it's, it's, I, I enjoyed this movie. It kept my attention. It's not one of my favorites. So I wouldn't put it in like above an 85 just because I, I don't like to give out arbitrary scores. I know you guys don't care, but I keep up with my own scores and know what I scored things. So there you go. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, 85 just felt right to me. Um, it, it wasn't like it, it didn't. It wasn't a movie that made me sit and linger on 
life. If it, if it was a movie that did that for me, then it would go up from there. All right. Understand? Uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go a little bit above. I'm going to give this an 87. Uh, I think this is a really good movie. And I think I don't typically like movies that do a frame narrative, but I think the way that the social network does it with the uh, deposition hearings and also using that to uh, give us an unreliable narrator is unique and interesting enough that I'll bump it up a little bit for that. Um, I think the casting in this is spectacular. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg and um, Andrew Garfield are just incredible. Um, I'm not even a huge Justin Timberlake fan. I think he does a really good job. I know we didn't talk about him a lot. Uh, but yeah, 87 feels right. And Mike, I know you're going to skew this a little bit, but give us your score. I skewed a little bit. I'm going to give this a 96. Okay. I think... This film is is a masterclass in screenplay. It is a masterclass in directing. It might not be evocative to the point where it's life-changing, which is why it's not my favorite movie of all time. But I think in terms of construction, the this film has no weak parts. And I genuinely think when, when you put together a list of movies that defined the first 10 to 20 years of this century, this will always be on whichever list you make because this movie just so perfectly encapsulates one of the most important events in modern history to be completely honest and i think it does it in such an interesting and powerful way and um on an arbitrary note it's also the year i was born so it felt good yeah there you go uh, yeah all right well uh, uh, after uh, uh putting that into our patented scoreometer barrel, barrel, barrel. <laughs> uh, we get a final score of 89 and one third so, Ooh, so almost close. an A, Mike. Almost an A. <laughs> I tried even a little higher. You could have got it there, but mm. a note on Justin Timberlake. He he, uh, as you all know, he's a he's a pop star. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also an actor. It's not like there are a lot of good Justin Timberlake movies laying around though, but this is a good one. Oh, um, yeah. I'm, sorry, I'm not a big uh, fan of him and trolls, so. Well, I mean, he just voices the troll. Yeah. <laughs> it's trolls. <laughs> hey, some He's... people like that movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's not a bad movie. It's just not like... It's a fun movie. Doesn't make it, it a good something. movie. Anyway, uh, next week, uh, we're going from one of Mike's favorite movies to one of Tristan's favorite movies. Tristan, what are we watching next week? I know you're so excited. We're watching my number two favorite film. Oh, man. Look at that. La La Land. La La Land. It used to be a little further, and then I and then I watched it again, and I thought about it a lot, and it has moved way the heck up. Man. So, um, now, so, yeah. tune in next week to see if it falls back down or it moves up even more. Mm. It will probably stay the same. <laughs> you, you better tune in next week to find out. Okay, tune in next week. Uh, I, I lied. <laughs> no, but, uh, yeah. uh, be sure to follow us all on social media at Fighter Media. Uh, we are putting out new episodes of Setting the Skeen every Wednesday. Uh, and be sure to check that out because, you know, I like the podcast. Do y'all like the podcast? I think it's pretty good. All right. Yeah. yeah. See, that's that's three people right there that, that all recommended this podcast. So that means you should go listen to it and you should, you know, go tell all your friends about it. Anyway, uh, until next week. I'm Ben. I'm Tristan. I'm Michael. And this has been Setting the Scheme. I hope you all have a great week. Uh-huh.